Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Regardless of the United States' official intention to back out of the Paris Climate Accord, it's a solid bet that at some point in the future, the country will return to the global agreement or something very much like it. The assertion is rooted in widespread efforts from states and local communities to uphold Paris commitments and by recent polling that shows that a strong majority of Americans favor government action to address climate change. Recently, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, a nonpartisan think tank, released a report offering scenarios under which the U.S. could reach its Paris goal to cut net greenhouse gas emissions 80% by the year 2050. Climate action scenarios are nothing new, but the center's approach is unique in examining the sources of leadership that will drive emissions down. The report authors from the RAND Corporation and the Joint Global Change Research Institute looked at how the federal government, the states, and consumers might each take the lead in catalyzing aggressive carbon reductions. The researchers found that the path taken could impact America's global economic competitiveness and domestic economic and social equity. On the line to discuss the scenarios are today's guests. Matthew Binstead is with the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and is one of the report's authors. Brad Townsend is Innovation Director with the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Matt and Brad, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Brad, I wonder if we could start with you. Uh, could you tell us about the genesis of the Pathways to 2050 report? Sure. The Center for Climate Energy Solutions uh, works across a range of different um, you know, sort of policy areas and, and specifically takes you know, a market-based a- approach to climate and energy policy. One of the, the anchors uh, of our work is actually a, a, a business council that we, uh, we would call the Business Environmental Leadership Council, which is 34 mostly Fortune 500 companies from every sector uh, in, in the economy, uh, but, but especially those with real skin in the game. So these are the oil and gas companies, the power companies, the mining and industrial companies that have you know emissions that that are you know that are, are the target of of uh, you know emissions reductions plans. So uh, couched within that, we launched a program uh, last year called Climate Innovation 2050 that is really designed to work with those companies uh, as well as some other non-business uh, council companies to identify uh, and articulate a pathway towards uh, mid-century decarbonization goals. Now, there's a fair amount of climate action modeling out there today, notably from the IEA or the International Energy Agency and from corporations such as BP, which publishes uh, an annual energy outlook. What new insights did you aim to gain through your research? So I think the interesting thing is that what we were aiming for uh, was actually less less interesting than what we found. Um, it, you know, a lot of those other efforts um, have have not. I mean, obviously, you know, BP is engaging uh, the business community, but I think in in terms of of taking a, a comprehensive, you know, sort of multi-sectoral approach to this kind of an exercise, uh, that's certainly something that that really hasn't been done before, and and was our sort of chief aim uh, in engaging with the companies in this project to to get their sense. Uh, of, of how plausible some of these scenarios might be, uh, as well as to try to identify some of the unintended consequences uh, of a, a, you know of taking a particular route, such that we could uh, again leverage that towards um, you know the articulation of a of a, a decarbonization strategy down the road. 
So, Brad, could you give us a high-level overview of the three scenarios you developed, and why did you choose to develop the scenarios as you did where the, the drivers at the federal, state, and consumer levels alternately took the lead in, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Sure. So I think the reason that we focused on you know, the sort of uh, social, economic, and political contexts are that, that those are the institutions within which decisions are going to be made uh, that, that will directly impact our ability to decarbonize. I think that actually interestingly points to one of the takeaways from the reports that, that maybe should be obvious, uh, but, but is worth stating, which is that everyone has to act. Uh, and so despite, you know, in, in each, uh, each sector having a different uh, actor sort of taking a leadership role in the end, everyone has a, a part to play. So the, the first scenario, uh, which we refer to uh, as a competitive climate, because if you're going to do scenarios work, Half the fun is coming up with uh, with some catchy uh, scenario titles, uh, and so in in this particular scenario, uh, we imagine that international trade is really the sort of catalyst for uh, for a, a more aggressive uh, you know response uh, here in the U.S. toward toward uh, reducing carbon emissions. So this looks like things like carbon tariffs, uh, and and really the the U.S. response to that international trade pressure being sort of a clean energy dominance. Uh, economic nationalism, sort of a, an, an approach that really creates a, a close collaboration between the federal government and the private sector uh, to, to to capture uh, export opportunities around clean clean energy technologies. And those tariffs uh, would be on on U.S. exports. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, so thinking about technologies, whether it's you know obviously uh, China is famously you know uh, exporting a lot of of solar panels uh, around the globe today. It's sort of you know identifying uh, whether it's it's batteries or, uh, you know, small modular nuclear reactors, uh, et cetera, really trying to identify, um, you know, those kinds of export opportunities and, and to capitalize on them. And if we're going to be forced to you know, participate in the, in the clean energy race, then, then we're going to dominate it uh, as the sort of general mindset uh, in, that, in that scenario. In the second scenario, uh, climate federalism, this is a, a more of a state-centric scenario where climate impacts and economic opportunity are, are really the, the, the two drivers. Uh, obviously, we're already seeing a lot of, of impacts um, you know, around the country related to, to climate change, but also there are a lot of states that are capitalizing on domestic uh, clean energy resources. So you know, wind throughout the Plain states, uh, solar in you know, the southwest, et cetera. And so states are, are sort of looking to capitalize on, on those kinds of opportunities. Uh, and ultimately, the, the emerging patchwork of state-level policy uh, triggers the, the private sector to demand a federal response uh, that could harmonize the playing field and make it, uh, make it a bit easier uh, for them to, to actually conduct uh, business, which, of course, has some, some important uh, mm-hmm. climate benefits as well. The third scenario, uh, which I think is, is uh, certainly the, the least um, uh, conventional of, of the scenarios, uh, we call low-carbon lifestyles. Uh, so this uh, scenario is really driven by uh, urbanization uh, and technology, specifically software, uh, as well as uh, a, a changing sort of market um, and, uh, and business model uh, approach that includes things like ride-sharing, distributed energy, uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, efficiency that can be gained through urban density, but it's also looking at things like autonomous vehicles and, and also importantly, transparency in the supply chain that allows consumers 
to be able to sort of vote with their wallet uh, when it comes to to choosing a lowest carbon option uh, of a you know, of a variety of different uh, products. You know, it's interesting on that last one on the low carbon lifestyles. There was no uh, or there is no carbon price in that. No formal carbon price, whereas in the other two scenarios, there are. Is that correct? So there's there's no federal price, but there are uh, state level pricing uh, in in place, and, and some of that is sort of based around what, what exists today. Uh, so the, the California uh, market, we'd imagine expanding a bit. Uh, likewise, in the Northeast, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, uh, is currently uh, an electricity market uh, uh, pricing regime. We'd imagine that expanding to economy-wide. And both of those picking up states uh, that have large urban centers. Uh, so, for example, Illinois would join REGI uh, by virtue of the fact that the city of Chicago uh, and its sort of growth in urbanization would increase the political power within uh, the city of Chicago, and, and the, the residents of Chicago would demand that the state of Illinois join Reggie. And so that you see a, a little bit of an increase uh, in an expansion in state-level markets uh, in, in that scenario. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that one of the key findings here was that the, the whole country, top to bottom, really has to be involved in this effort to reach the 80% greenhouse gas uh, reduction by mid-century. But in, in broad terms, what are the other key findings that, that came out of this? Some reinforce the existing literature uh, on key strategies, and some are new. Um, for example, you know, technological innovation is, is really important toward, uh, to, to decarbonize, but without policy, it's not sufficient. Uh, we also found that, that uh, decarbonization requires that, that everyone, uh, as you mentioned, sort of plays their part, but, but also that that action needs to accelerate. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think a, a really interesting uh, thing uh, about this particular um, report was that we, we found that the success of any pathway ultimately is going to hinge on high levels of public support. And each of the scenarios really just looked at a different way in which that public support might manifest. You know, Matt, I'd like to turn to you here for a moment. Uh, so you had these different outcomes, the three different uh, scenarios. In, in what key ways did the actual outcomes diverge between those three scenarios? Well, the outcomes of the scenario modeling were acutely tied to these narrative storylines that Brad just articulated for the three scenarios, which influenced the uh, different input assumptions that we use in the modeling and therefore uh, the model outputs. Um, an example is in the power sector. We find, as have many other studies in this vein, that decarbonizing the power sector is a key strategy to reducing economy-wide emissions. And uh, the low-carbon lifestyle scenario at a 90% emissions reduction in the power sector actually has the smallest uh, emissions reduction in that sector, with the other two pushing closer to 100% emissions reductions. But the way that that decarbonization of electricity generation is achieved varies substantially across scenarios. For example, in a competitive climate, we have lower cost carbon capture and storage and nuclear technologies. This is driven in part by the strong federal leadership role. These are uh, kind of large expensive technologies that require um, big capital investments and have significant regulatory uh, hurdles that the federal government could help, uh, help clear for these technologies. And so uh, CCS and nuclear are an important component in decarbonizing power in a competitive climate. 
Conversely, in low-carbon lifestyles, we see a lot larger role for distributed renewable energy, wind, and solar. Uh, another way in which the outcomes diverge across these scenarios has to do with the transportation sector. We see substantial emissions reductions in that sector across all the scenarios, but a competitive climate uh, leans on advanced biofuels as a key enabling technology, whereas climate federalism has an advanced fuel cell electric vehicle that plays an important role. And in low-carbon lifestyles, we have uh, uh, large advancements in battery electric vehicles and electrification of transportation, as well as increased use of public transportation in these increasingly dense urban areas. Uh, a final point has to do with uh, the role of negative emissions. We find that across the scenarios, it's important to have uh, negative emissions that are able to offset uh, emissions from certain sectors that are difficult to squeeze out, uh, for example, uh, agriculture, some industrial uh, emissions. And in a competitive climate, we see deployment of bioenergy plus carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, the bioenergy, uh, when it's grown, sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere. And then when it's uh, used largely in uh, biorefineries to create liquid biofuels, the carbon emissions are captured, stored underground, and this effectively removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Uh, conversely, in low-carbon lifestyles, uh, again, with this theme of urbanization, uh, we have greater opportunity for land sector sequestration, and the land system plays a bigger role with, uh, with afforestation in helping remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to offset some of these more difficult to remove emissions. Is that because the population is more concentrated in, in urban areas, so there's, uh, I guess, more rural area to develop these other technologies? Yes, that's certainly part of the storyline, and there's also uh, incentives um, and, and uh, uh, incentives for land sector sequestration mm -hmm. that we've implemented in the model that, that lead to uh, afforestation of marginal lands. So Brad, in the climate federalism scenario, which is the state-driven scenario, um, many of the technologies that we would be relying upon to lower uh, carbon emissions, particularly from the energy sector, such as uh, distributed solar batteries, et cetera, would actually be imported because, as I understood it, um, due to the lack of a, a kind of a cohesive or overarching national policy and R&D effort uh, on those areas, U.S. kind of falls behind, and, and some, we have to rely on those technologies to come from other places. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that I think also uh, has to do with just a decreased amount of federal uh, expenditure uh, in the R&D side as well as, as it being less coordinated. I think, interestingly, you know, the, some of the technologies that you did see uh, emerge on the domestic side in in that scenario, uh, such as nuclear, such as as fuel cells and, and hydrogen, were technologies that are that, that either have, in the case of nuclear, some uh, some security issues. Right, you're not going to import uh, nuclear technology uh, from other countries. Are certainly much much less likely to do so. Uh, conversely, hydrogen, by virtue of the the infrastructure needs. Uh, and specifically thinking about pipelines uh, and shipping costs, et cetera, is, is much more likely to thrive given 
that you have a, a sort of domestic supply of hydrogen and a network for distributing it. So, uh, so it was a, a definitely a different uh, set of technology outcomes in that scenario, which I think was an, an interesting part of this exercise broadly, which was to think about how leadership from an individual actor might play out uh, on the technology side. Got it. So, so Matt, uh, the first time you ran the scenarios, they actually didn't work. You didn't achieve the target 80% reduction in carbon emissions. What assumptions were you using? You're absolutely right. The uh, initial set of simulations only got uh, about halfway to the 80% emissions reduction target. Uh, I think one of the... um, the biggest limitations with those initial scenarios was over-reliance on a single actor to pull uh, the whole country, the whole economy uh, towards decarbonization. We had a scenario that was federally led, state led, or market led, and we largely uh, relied on that one actor and, and uh, policies at, at those particular levels to uh, drive the decarbonization outcomes. In the revised scenarios, we uh, focus much more on every actor having a role to play across the three scenarios, and there's a figure in the report which uh, articulates this zone of transition in the near term where a, where a particular actor might take the lead in uh, driving emissions reduction efforts, but really when we get to 2030, 2035, the modeling is telling us that we, we need action across all actors and all sectors of the economy if, we're, uh, if we want to achieve these types of emissions reductions. I, I would also say that some of the, um, the policy mechanisms that we deployed were just slightly uh, less ambitious. I think our carbon price in that initial uh, iteration topped out somewhere just over $100, where we were uh, closer to $300 in the, in the final scenario set. So a uh, combination of focusing too much on a single actor and, um, and policies that weren't stringent enough, con- uh, clean energy standards that were lower, uh, inclusive of less states, et cetera. You just mentioned that $300 topping out of the carbon price. Uh, one of the assumptions that you actually used in the, the, the final three scenarios, uh, I think also with the competitive climate, the federally driven scenario, was that you started out with a carbon price uh, of $40 and then raised it pretty aggressively, and that started uh, early next decade. Tell us about the, the carbon pricing and some of the other um, uh, assumptions that, that went into the, the successful scenarios. Well, as you said, we have a uh, – in – a competitive climate, we have uh, assumed an economy-wide carbon price that begins uh, early next decade and and, um, and rises fairly uh, steadily towards uh, just about three hundred dollars in 2050. But that's complemented by a lot of uh, other policies at different levels of government and in different sectors. Uh, For example, we have clean energy standards across a number of states that help uh, create additional incentives for decarbonization of the power sector. We have um, building standards that drive uh, efficiency improvements in the building sector. And then obviously, um, 
we have technology innovation, assumptions about technology innovation that are also incorporated, uh, like the carbon capture and storage, or CCS, and nuclear that I mentioned in the power sector, advanced biofuel, uh, cost reductions in the transportation sector, which help um, make uh, help, help that carbon tax drive emissions reductions because of the, the associated cost decreases in those technologies. So, Matt, costs didn't figure heavily in your analysis. Why is that? Uh, there are a couple of reasons why we didn't focus too heavily on costs in the analysis. For one, uh, gross domestic product is an exogenous input to uh, the tool we're using, the global change assessment model. Um, there's no uh, endogenous or, or built-in uh, representation of the macro economy. Um, so the tool is very useful for capturing cross-sectoral impacts, making sure that uh, our accounting for emissions reductions is, is uh, rigid and consistent across sectors. Uh, but it's the, the version of the model we're using, at least, is less adept at capturing macroeconomic impacts. Uh, another thing I think is important to reiterate is that um, one of the innovative parts of this whole exercise was the uh, formulation of, of thinking about these scenarios in terms of key drivers and the way that uh, society might structure itself uh, in order to try to achieve deep emissions reductions. And the, the model was used as a tool to understand whether or not uh, these three very different types of worlds were, were indeed plausible. Yeah, Brad, the three scenarios bring their own implications for how the United States will evolve as its economy goes low carbon. And it seems that strong federal policy could lead to a more even distribution of economic benefits than the low-carbon lifestyle scenario would, for example. Can you, can you go into why this is? Well, so I think, you know, that, that may in fact be the case. Uh, it, it wasn't really something that we specifically looked at uh, in this exercise. But I think a point that, that Matt just made uh, is, is instructive in, in thinking about this. Which is, which is really about leakage. Uh, and so having a federal response allows for a more uniform distribution of costs, and you, you end up avoiding the game of whack-a-mole uh, when it comes to emissions. And I think that has uh, you know, implications uh, in, in you know, economic uh, um, considerations as well as we think about you know, the, the, the economic benefits that accrue to certain areas uh, as a result of, of climate policy, making sure that that those are, are uh, accumulating broadly, I think, is a, is a key part of, of uh, the question to be asked going forward. So that brings up a related point. In the report, uh, you point out that carbon revenue to the federal government peaks at around $350 billion per year at some point in the 2040s. Uh, and that's in the, federal, the federally driven scenario. In other scenarios... Uh, that carbon revenue doesn't go to the federal government so much as it goes to state governments and certain state governments, uh, which would result in less national equity because there wouldn't be a, a federal government 
redistributing some of those carbon revenues for various projects. Can you comment on that? We didn't explicitly model what would be done with those uh, with those dollars um, generated by by the federal price or or state prices uh, explicitly. Um, we did include in in the narrative certain elements like those dollars being funneled towards increased R and D efforts, uh, equity issues, as well as uh, you know resilience uh, and those types of of things. But but those were all sort of qualitative uh, and narrative elements. Uh, with the exception of uh, you know state level revenues in uh, low carbon lifestyles, which were directed explicitly towards uh, land incentives, uh, you know for for uh, afforestation, et cetera. And I think uh, Matt, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think that was actually the case across all three scenarios uh, on the land land sequestration side. But I think that may have been the only uh, uh, revenue uh, use that that we were able to to include in the model. So, Brad, do you see any of these scenarios uh, mirrored in the U.S. today? And if, if so, which ones? So I think the, the interesting thing about, about this exercise is that there are seeds uh, of the, the sort of current uh, dynamic here in the U.S. In, in every one of these scenarios. So in a competitive climate, uh, the, the issue, uh, the idea of trade uh, as, a, as a significant issue is certainly not something that I think is, uh, is alien to the current political dynamic uh, in the second scenario, uh, climate federalism, we're already seeing a lot of, of climate impacts as well as states moving to capitalize on economic opportunities that, that can grow out of clean energy technology development. Uh, and in low-carbon lifestyles, uh, we, we are already seeing increases in urbanization, the emergence of ride-sharing, growth in distributed energy uh, resources like rooftop solar uh, and wind, et cetera. And so I think, you know, in, in many respects, each of them were built around, you know, pieces of the current landscape, uh, you know, to, to have some, some uh, measure of plausibility uh, embedded within them. Let me ask you a, a final question here. As a next step, you'll be working on policy recommendations to move, to actually move toward the 80% carbon reduction by mid-century. Give us a preview of where those recommendations might lead. Sure. So we uh, at C2ES are working to, to translate the scenario exercise and the, the takeaways and insights from uh, that, that exercise and the comparison across scenarios. And, and using those insights, we're going to be developing sector-by-sector sector, uh, uh, outlines and, and I, you know, sort of identifying priority policy actions uh, at the federal level, at the state level, but also you know, within companies, sort of best management practices, as well as identifying uh, in, in key places where consumers really have a role uh, to play in, in helping the economy move towards decarbonization. Uh, we'll also take a look at some cross-cutting issues like finance and innovation and how those factor uh, across uh, the entire economy. Uh, and so we'll be working with the companies uh, to, you know, to, to flesh those details out uh, over the course of the year and, and plan to release that report uh, before the end of 2019. Matt and Brad, thanks for talking. Thanks so much. Thank you. Today's guests have been Matthew Binstead with the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and Brad Townsend, Innovation Director with the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Visit the Climate Center's website for our archive of Energy Policy Now episodes and for the latest research from the Center. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And keep up with the Center News via our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.